Well, that's a very old song. Aren't we thankful for the message in it? Amazing grace. Well, you know, we're living in an age of very unsettling turmoil. Watching the news and listening to the news on the radio, it just seems that we hear a litany of disturbing events. And, you know, I'm almost, I'm almost 86 years old, and in all the years that I've lived, I've never seen our country torn apart the way it is now, except possibly in the 1960s. Sometimes when visiting with folks, you hear anger, you hear fear, you hear hatred. We even hear despair. And those of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and students of his word know the source of all this problem is one being Satan. <laughs> He's out to get us. The nature of, of spiritual warfare that we're facing right now is not new, but it does seem to be much greater in its intensity. It's important for us to be aware of the nature of the battle that we're fighting today. So this morning I want to spend some time just reminding ourselves of the nature of the conflict we're in and also consider the question, is there anything we can do? <laughs> and that question itself has many facets and there are just as many facets to the answer and certainly we couldn't consider all of these but we want to talk about how should we live in times like these. First, the most important thing at all is to realize we're in a spiritual battle with a very merciless enemy. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Satan goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In the parable of the, of the shepherd and the fold, Jesus said, The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And if Satan had his way, he would physically kill everyone in the world who is taking the light of Jesus into the realm of darkness. He wants to get us out of the way, so we'll not threaten his kingdom. The book of Job teaches us that this merciless enemy that would like to destroy us and bring us down is hampered by only one thing and that is the hand of God. He can't do anything against us that God does not allow. And God puts forth his hand and says, this is far enough, no further, no further. The passage in Second Corinthians says we will not be, and some versions say, tempted above that which we are able to bear. Now the Greek word that is used there most of the time refers to some kind of a test like test yourselves, test God, so on. There are three or four times where it is referenced to enticing into sin. And whether it is referring in that passage to enticing into sin or a general test, the point is God will not allow us to be tested or tempted above that which we are able to bear. And then it says, and this is one I've never been able to figure out, Will with the temptation make a way of escape? I've never been able to figure out that escape part. It just seems to be there. And there are times when things have come upon me personally, and one more thing, and one more thing, and I've said, God, I, I can't take another thing. And then I think to myself, yes, I can. Because if God didn't know I could handle it, he wouldn't let it 
come upon me. We're in a very intense spiritual battle right now with a merciless enemy going about like a roaring lion seeking to devour everyone, especially those who follow Jesus, everyone that he can. Now, this is an unseen enemy. You know, so often it'd be easier to fight if you could see your enemy. We say, well, it's Al-Qaeda or it's ISIS or it's this or that or the other. But behind all of this horrible conflict, there is an unseen enemy. Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. It's interesting, the Greek terms in each one of those. The first one that is translated rulers is the Greek word arche. Arche are primary rulers who answer to no one but themselves. We see an interesting hierarchy of this demonic kingdom pictured here. Second word is the exousia. When anyone has exousia, that means you have authority that has been delegated to you. And so in this satanic hierarchy, there's the archon or the arche singular that, that have power and they answer to no one. They are the commanders. They are in control. But then there are others to whom they delegate authority in certain regions. The third word is katakrosmor, which is translated rulers of this world and darkness. And that is the third level of those who are directly involved with the world in which we live. And then the last word is pneumatikos, teis, hypokaios, the the spiritual forces in the heavenlies. I'm firmly convinced because of experiences I've had in traveling in different parts of the country and, yes, different parts of the world, that there really are spiritual forces assigned to different geographical areas. Some of you know about an encounter we had some years ago when Barb and I were in one part of the country And there was great turmoil in the church, great turmoil in the kingdom. And as we were trying to work through situations, there was just a sense of tremendous control and confusion. Nobody could think straight. My mother used to have a a Dutch oven, you know, an old uh, cast metal thing with a lid on it. (laughs) And uh, it's almost that way over that area. And we could get in the car and drive 30 miles and suddenly I could think as clear as a bell, but I could drive back under that lid and my thoughts became confusing. We helped establish a church in that area and we commissioned that church. One of the reasons God has called this congregation into existence is for you to begin to consistently send forth a column of intercessory prayer to dispel the spirit that is over this area. In recent years, as we have gone back, we have not found that spirit to be there. I believe that intercessory prayer has made the difference. One place, and I'll not say where it was, I felt like I was walking through a jungle with tigers in the trees waiting to jump out on me. The sense of that evil spiritual being fighting the kingdom of God is so present at times as we go from place to place to place. Remember in Daniel chapter 10, 
Daniel had been fasting and praying for 21 days, and finally the angel Gabriel came to him and touched him. And he said, From the time you first began praying and interceding, God dispatched me to you, but I couldn't get through because of the prince of Persia, that demonic hierarchy that was over Persia. And then God sent Michael, the archangel, who was equal to that spirit, and he opened the way, and I could get through to you. There we see the territorial spirit that God had to send an archangel to remove him. So Gabriel, who in every place in the scripture always is a messenger, had to come and bring the word. We need to realize we're not just dealing with angry people. We're not just dealing with a part of society that's upset. We're dealing with demonic forces that are having their way in our land and, yes, in the world. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. We've spoken about this before, but let's just recall it. That passage says that when men who knew God chose to not honor him as God, began to treat holy things as unholy, it got to the point it says God gave them over. He took off his hand. And when he did, here are the things that began to take place in that culture. And you look at those symptoms and you say, what caused these things? It is because God removed his hand. Today, as we look at American culture, that passage, especially from verse 24 onward, is a description of the society in which we're living today. Why do we conclude because God has taken his hand off our nation because when we knew God, we stopped honoring him as God. I recently saw a video of a retirement service for a man who had spent many years in the military. And this particular branch of the service had a ceremony that they went through when someone retired to honor him. And in that service, mention of God was there. Recently, that branch rewrote that and removed God. But this man who was retiring wanted one of his retired friends to come and use the old ceremony, which mentioned God. And he got up and began reciting the ceremony and mentioned God. And the commander told three soldiers, go haul him out. And forcibly, they removed him from the room because he was mentioning God. Is it any wonder that it is possible that God has taken his hand off our nation. We need to pray like all get out, brothers and sisters, for our land. We need to be mindful of our enemy's schemes. Ephesians six eleven. put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And in 2 Corinthians two eleven, Paul wrote, we must conduct ourselves so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. What are his schemes of which we are not ignorant? Let's think about some of them. One is his accusing voice. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 
says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now is the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. He is the accuser of the brethren. You know, one thing he likes to do is to accuse us <laughs> against ourselves. You'll never be any good. You're worthless. All you are is a failure. That's not the voice of God. That's the voice of the enemy. He likes to cause us to lose heart and become weary. The great prophet, prophet, uh, prophetic revelation that God gave to Daniel one of the things that was said was this. He will speak out, speaking of this evil force. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and law, so on and so on. Wear down the saints of the Most High. It gets tiring, doesn't it? It gets tiring. Two times Paul encouraged us to not grow weary in well-doing. Galatians 6, 9, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And Second Thessalonians three thirteen. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. You see, the devil wants us to just wear out and say, I've had it, and sit down and give up. He wants to wear us out. And he'll do all he can through harassment to wear us out. Division. Oh, what a weapon that is. Let me tell you again a story I've told before, but I want to tell it again because it made such an impact on me. In the years before I came to TCF, one thing that occupied my summer every year was church camp. And for many years, I was on the faculty of Sunset Bible Camp, then for a few years was camp manager. And here's how the schedule went. Sunday, you taught Sunday school, and you preached a sermon, and you quickly ate dinner, loaded up a bunch of kids, and headed off to Bragg's, Oklahoma, Greenleaf State Park for church camp. And you enrolled kids in church for the afternoon, and and, and you'd make sure everything was going, then drive back to town and preach, and then go back to camp. Well, on this particular time, I'd been extremely busy, and after enrolling everybody, I was driving back to Tulsa to preach, and I hadn't had time to give a single thought to a sermon. And I was driving along, God, what am I going to preach? In an hour from now, I'm going to be in the pulpit. What am I going to preach? What am I going to preach? And as I was crying out, suddenly the odor of a skunk filled the, filled the car. What an answer to prayer. And then these words came to me. That's your sermon tonight. Satan has an odor. You never mistake the odor of a skunk. And you cannot mistake the odor of Satan. Anytime there is division, Satan has been there. He is the source of division whether it's between a husband and a wife, parent and child, brother and sister in the Lord, nations, Satan somewhere is present in that situation. His stink 
if you please, is division. In this congregation, we have some people who are dyed-in-the-wool, dedicated Republicans. And in this congregation, we have some folk who are dyed-in-the-wool, dedicated Democrats. Now, my assumption is that whichever of these you are, you have prayerfully considered the planks of both parties, and with all your heart you feel that Jesus Christ both fits this one or that one, and that's what you've chosen to be. I hope that's what you've done. <laughs> but you know, just because we have loyalty to different political parties, we must never allow the devil to cause division among us on that. I don't have to agree with you to love you deeply and to be your brother and die for you. The devil would love for us to be divided. And sad to say, that's happening. I remember at Bel Air Christian Church during one period of time, uh, one of the members of the uh, Central Democratic Party in Tulsa was a member of the church. There was another man who was the John Burke Society and a Goldberg uh, advocate. <laughs> And both were trying to put books in the library. I mean, it was a challenge. Not only that, we had, well, I'm not going on with the story, but the devil loves that kind of stuff. That has no place in dividing us as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Romans, Mark those that cause division among you. Have nothing to do with them, Romans 16, 17. A similar warming, 1 Corinthians 1, 10, 1 Corinthians 3, 3. Galatians 5, 19 to 20, on and on and on. Paul points out division. Division is something that glorifies Satan, does not glorify God. Now, it's interesting to the Corinthians. He said, of course, I realize there have to be divisions among you, so it will be apparent as to which ones really are of God and aren't. <laughs> and then you have that warning of those that will bring in false doctrine and try to seduce people into following them. You know, that's really a subtle one, isn't it? The devil can do that so cleverly. There was a church uh, I visited a while back, and there was a man in that church who was uh, a Bible teacher, highly respected. He knew the Word. He was a scholar. People had trouble disagreeing with him even. While I was there, one of the men of the church said, I need to speak with you privately. And he said, let me tell you about this man. All he talks about is God's love. And he's trying to get another couple to join him and his wife in group sex because it's love. Isn't that absurd? Yet this man was one of those that Jude says they're like clouds without water. They're reefs in your midst. We will have division at times because there are those who come among us like wolves in sheep's clothing who are bearing the mark of Satan, but they hide it so well. In that case, division has to happen, doesn't it? We have to stand. He puts us into situations where we are vulnerable concerning our own lust toward sin. This passage in James 1, beginning with verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. 
For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And we've spoken of this before, but here seems to be the picture. That each one of us within has some kind of a spiritual ovum. And Satan will do his best to fertilize that ovum and cause sin to be born. And we've illustrated this by a man who's walking in the checkout line at Walmart and the cashier gets called away and leaves the cash drawer open and there's all that money and he has to fight like everything to keep from taking it. (laughs) Maybe grabs a few. He leaves and walks past a pornographic theater and isn't tempted at all to go in. Another man sees that cash drawer empty and hmm, or open, open cash drawer. (laughs) He walks past the pornographic theater and has to fight like everything to keep from going in. Satan knows you and Satan knows me, not because he has omniscient knowledge, but because he and his minions have studied you and they have studied me. And they know what kind of ovum I have. And he will do his best to put us into situations where that can be fertilized by some temptation and bring forth sin. Have you ever thought about the ovum that was in Judas? Remember when the woman came and knelt at Jesus' feet and anointed him with a very expensive spikenard of ointment and the aroma filled the room? Judas said, what a waste. That should have been sold and the money put in the money box to help the poor. And Scripture says he said that because he's the one who carried the money box and he pilfered it. You see, his ovum was lust for money. And so when the enemies of Jesus came to him and said, we will give you 30 pieces of silver if you'll betray him, sin was born. He took the money and he betrayed Jesus. His ovum was greed and love of money. Have you ever thought about Peter? Remember one day Peter was out, or Jesus was a little bit away from him, and some of Jesus' enemies came up and said, Does your master pay the temple tax? Uh, oh, yes, of course he does. Then he went to Jesus, Do we pay the temple tax? And Jesus said, Well, tell you what, Peter, go out and fish, and you'll catch a fish with a coin in its mouth, and that's the right amount, go pay the tax. Why did Peter, Peter say that? Could it be the ovum in him was that esteem or worth or fear of wrong identification? 
when Jesus was arrested in the garden. He said to those soldiers who came, Take me, but let them go. In essence, get out of here, guys. <laughs> you have no part in this. Peter and John followed close at hand. They came to the courtyard where Jesus was to be examined in a building nearby. John went right in. He knew the high priest had no problem. Peter didn't know anybody. He was hanging outside, couldn't get in the gate. John came in, said, come on, let him in. Peter came in. It's interesting from that point on, we don't read about where John was. But Peter warmed his hands by the fire. You remember when he first at the gate, when he first came in, there was a maid and said, oh, you're one of his disciples. Oh, no, I'm not. Three times, finally the last time he cursed and said, I do not know the man. Earlier, Peter had said to Jesus, though everyone denies you, I will never deny you. And Jesus said, you will before the cock crows three times. In the garden, he showed courage to pull out a sword and cut off the ear of the high priest. But around the campfire, when accusation was coming, it was much like when those Pharisees said, does your master pay the temple tax? Oh, no, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I'm not one of his. Something about the ovum of being looked at or seen in the wrong way or fear perhaps even in his heart. It's interesting, Judas, having realized what he had done, went back to the high priests and threw the money down. They wouldn't take it back, so he threw it down and went out and hanged himself. After Peter had denied Jesus the third time, the cock immediately crew and grew, crowed, and, and Scripture says Jesus turned and looked at him, and Peter went out in the night and wept bitterly. On our computers, sometimes when things go wrong, we can straighten it out by going back to a restore point. <laughs> as if anything beyond that never happened. Sometimes in life, don't we wish we had a restore point <laughs> that we could go back to a time before the tragedy had never happened. Judas hanged himself. Peter later repented before the Lord. Three times Jesus said, do you love me? Three times, yes, I love you, Lord. The opposite of his three times said denying him. Satan will do all that he can to put us into situations where whatever propensity for sin we have, he'll tempt us in that given area because he knows that's an area where we are vulnerable. And when that happens, Satan tells us we're worthless, we're no good. Judas believed it. Peter hung on and later knew repentance. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is just and will forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, that's kind of a restore point, isn't it? We can't undo it. But as far as heaven is concerned, God took a wet rag and washed the blackboard and got rid of that record. What a beautiful thought. Satan hates that. He, the accuser of the brethren does not want that to be escaped.
So many things further could be said along that line. But let's think about the armor that we have, as Paul describes it in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world's forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. Now you will notice as he describes the armor, it is defensive. Having girded your loins with truth. It's interesting, it doesn't say the truth. The truth would be the gospel, but truth, truth. Let your loins be girded with truth. <laughs> and Paul, writing to the Ephesians in chapter 4, said to speak truth to one another, to lie not to one another. So, general truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This refers to righteous living. Romans six thirteen says, Therefore, as having received a new life to God, submit your members as slaves to righteousness. As long as you're living a righteous life, the devil is going to have a dickens of a time <laughs> trying to find some way to pull you down and having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Have you ever noticed that as Jesus began that beautiful soliloquy found in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then in verse 23, he concludes it. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world give I unto you. And then the words with which he began, let not your heart be troubled neither be afraid. It's a beautiful thing to live with a peaceful heart knowing that we are at peace with God. Take up the shield of faith where we sh you shall quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And oh, we've preached about this so often, but faith is, is there. God is God. He is in control. I know the truth. And the songs we sang today, Jim, <laughs> help is on the way. <laughs> Faith, the helmet of salvation. I know I'm saved. The devil can do what he wants, but he can't take that away from me. Remember Paul said, I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he will keep that which I have committed unto him until that day when he comes to get us. He will keep us.
What a joy to be certain of salvation. If you're not certain, you better do something about it. That's too risky to gamble. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you notice he's everything here really is defensive, so it's almost as if you parry the thrusts of the enemy with that. And then here's an aggressive action, he tells us. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all saints. Now notice it says pray in the Spirit, not with the Spirit. To pray with the Spirit is pray with tongues. To pray in the Spirit means you're praying in fellowship with and the leading of the Holy Spirit, whether in tongues or English. So whenever we pray, we should not just be mouthing words. We should not just be saying a prayer. But in communication with God by the Holy Spirit, we are coming before his throne with that sense. Pray in the Spirit at all times. We need to consistently don the armor. <laughs> Take it on. It's interesting the, where it talks about the helmet of salvation. The word in the Greek there literally says receive it. Receive it. Take up the armor receive the helmet of salvation, a gift that God gives us, a beautiful thing to think about. Well, there's so much that we could say, but we will just stop here. But in conclusion, these distressing days in which we're living, one thing I want to do is make certain that regardless of whether times are easy or difficult, I will not give Satan a place to stand in my life. We have that passage again. Do not, some versions say, don't give Satan an opportunity. Some say, don't give place to him. The Greek word is topos, which literally means place. Don't give him any place to stand in your life. Or he can plant his feet and say, this is mine, and I'm going to hold it. Don't give him a place in your life. We need to remember that he's a relentless enemy. We need to remember that we have the armor. But I'll tell you, for me personally, one of the most encouraging passages and exhortations is this passage from Hebrews 12. And speaking of those he's just listed, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And oh, this is so important. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the same, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh Lord, we pray that in the midst of the clouds that sometimes swirl about us, that by faith we will be able to see Jesus not only as our example, but as our deliverer. Help us to examine every area of our lives, oh God, to know where Satan has a place to stand. And then by your Holy Spirit, may we evict him 
that you be totally king and Lord of our lives. We ask this through Jesus. Amen.